All right, here it is, episode number 672, coming to you on Monday, November 7th. I am out here in Las Vegas, Nevada, about to do a residency here at the Comedy Cellar, located in the Rio Hotel. So if you're out and about visiting Vegas, come on down to the shows. Incredible guest today. A Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, and shout out to the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees that went down over the weekend. I had an invite to go to to the uh, induction, which happened to be in L.A. this weekend, but sticking to my my, uh, focus and my my career... (laughs) I decided not to go, which is, you know, it was a tough decision, but I, uh, you know, I, I, I had an opportunity to do four shows Saturday night, and uh, like I always say now, I choose stand-up over anything these days, and it felt good. Opened up for Jay Leno Saturday night. There's a, another icon, legend that I've worked with now in the biz. I've worked with some of the greats, almost all of them. Uh, What do we got? Chris Rock, Burr, Marin, uh, Seinfeld. uh, Who else? Uh, Mattel. I mean, uh, this is dumb that I just started to try to get into that without writing it down. It's funny because I was watching Eminem's induction speech and look judas priest got inducted and they played with kk and that was wild to see but that was also just kind of a wake up of like man they should get kk back in the band what are these dummies doing but i was watching uh eminem get inducted and he shouted out about 50 hip-hop artists that influenced him and that was just incredible just to hear all of the greats and a lot of those uh, should be in the rock and roll hall of fame if you're one of those people that are like no way man it's rock and roll hip-hop doesn't belong in there that's just uh that's just dumb but my guest today is in the rock and roll hall of fame he is uh one part of a duo that is the most successful duo of all time Daryl Hall and John Oates. And John Oates is my guest today. And oh man, it was great to talk to him. I didn't know this. And I didn't really ask him because I wasn't uh, sure where it was. But everybody's called him Hall and Oates. And as I was doing a little research, it turns out that it's Daryl Hall, John Oates on all the covers. And I guess that's what they wanted to be called. And people just called him Hall and Oates. I don't know. I didn't ask him that because I didn't, I don't know. I should have asked him, but it's kind of, that's kind of a, a rookie question, but I had no idea. I've always called him Hall and Oates, but John Oates is here today. And like I said, they sold over 80 million records They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They're in the Songwriting Hall of Fame. And the two of those guys have wrote some of the most incredible FM radio songs of all time. And I mean, you, 
you cannot turn on the FM dial still to this day. A lot like Michael McDonald, who was on a few weeks ago. A lot like Steely Dan. Those 70s acts, man, they could write some songs, these, these kids. <laughs> but it's true. It is true. They were uh, way into the craft of songwriting. And, man, there are some people out there that could do it. But you got to think about it. They're over Simon and Garfunkel. They're over the Carpenters, the Everly Brothers. Uh, I mean, this, that's pretty damn impressive. The hits, are, the hits are, it's just unreal, their track record. Rich Girl, Kiss on My List, Private Eyes, I Can't Go For That, Man Eater, Out of Touch, She's Gone, Sarah Smile, Family Man, which is a good story in this podcast about, about that song. Uh, it goes on and on. Uh, oh, also, he's a, a huge Porsche fan, so it was, uh, we dive into some car talk. Um, yeah, great weekend. A lot of comedy. Now I'm about to dig in in Las Vegas. Tour dates are at deandelray.com. I want to thank uh, some new Patreoners out there. I've been... Uh, putting up a lot of bonus stuff i put up a new bonus episode a few days ago and there will be a zoom fest happening and uh new patreoners let me find them here god damn it where are they oh here you go right here new patreoners ross taylor murphy and kelsey olson rob adams yeah there you go Dean Del Rey is my uh, Patreon. Patreon.com slash Dean Del Rey. So uh, I guess that is about it. I hope to see some of you out here or my dates coming up in Philly at Soul Joel's the first weekend of December. Or some of the dates I'll be back with Burr um, on the arena tour, which is like Salt Lake, Colorado, and Idaho, looking forward to going back to Boise, Idaho. Boise. Ah, <laughs> oh, man, I love you guys. I can't thank you enough. Clocks are fucking back. It's dark at four o'clock. Let the depression sink in, people. Anyway, uh, I love you guys. Keep the candles lit. This episode is brought to you by Migos Dog. The cleanest dog food going. All human ingredients, handmade, hand-cooked right in Malibu, California. And now they deliver to your front door if you live in Los Angeles. If you live in California, you can pick it up at Erwan's and Healthy Spot. And if you live in Los Angeles, like I said, they'll deliver it to your house. Do not feed your dog garbage. Your dog is your love of your life. And treat them like it by getting them some great food. MigosDog.com or follow them on Instagram. And check out their website. They're running all kinds of specials. They also have uh, some cool stuff like toppers you can put on uh, food that you have to maybe enhance your uh, food that you're giving the dog. Anyway, Gertrude, my dog, loves it. And uh, I know your dog will love it. Migos dog.com 
Okay, let's get into it. Let's talk some songwriting. Let's talk some cars. Let's talk some record company shenanigans. And let's talk about John Oates' brand new single, Pushing a Rock. You can stream it on all the platforms. You can also see it on YouTube. Official video out right now. Great song and uh, great guest. Thank you so much, John Oates, for doing the show. It was an honor to have you on, and uh, your music has absolutely enhanced my life for many, many, many years. So here he is, Candles Are Lit, for Mr. John Oates. This episode is brought to you by Skillshare. Whether you've been at it for decades or you're just getting started, it's never a bad time to explore how your passion could turn into a profitable side hustle. Skillshare helps you level up your skills with curated expert-led classes covering everything from graphic design and hand lettering to web development, photography, and so much more. Best of all, you just pay once and get unlimited access to as many classes as you want the whole year. And get this, right now, you can get a super deal if you use Skillshare.com slash Delray, D-E-L-R-A-Y. Use it today and get your first month free. That's Skillshare.com slash Delray. Skillshare classes are curated and polished for maximum impact. In under 60 minutes, you can learn more than you would in a whole weekend spent scouring YouTube. With Skillshare projects-based community-driven format, you'll start applying lessons right away and get feedback as you go along. Skillshare is definitely helping me and it'll help you immediately get into this and get that free month free. Skillshare.com slash Delray. What's happening? How are you? I'm good. How are you? Right. We have a uh, mutual friend, Rod Emery. Yes, I, I saw that in the message. How do you know Rod? What's the connection? Well, I'm an absolute Porsche fanatic. Oh, join the club. Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, you know, I reached out to interview him because I, I loved his cars. And then he had me over to the shop and did the podcast and and while we were doing it, he was building your car. So it was, ah, th- awesome. yeah, it was there and I was just, I fell in love with it. I think it's the best one he's done for me, you know? Um, I, I, I would agree. <laughs> uh, it's one of the, it's one of the special ones for sure. It's, uh, do you know, he gets a call once a week. Uh, people call him once a week asking for the color code of that car and he won't give it to anyone um, because it's a specially blended custom color. And um, so he, it's pretty funny. He just, he will not tell anyone what that color is. That's so funny because it's, it's, it's a gold and it, and if you're a guitar freak like me, it's kind of gold top, you know, like old yeah. gold top, you know, it's, it's gold, it's graphite, it's brown, it's black. It's, it's really, you know, it actually is the, the, the base color is a Porsche color from the early fifties, graphite metallic, but that had a kind of a blue cast to it. So what he did was he blended gold and black into that graphite. And it's just this unique, unique color. Well, obviously this isn't your first car, your first Porsche. So 
how do you get into it? Cause with me, I got into it at a young age of like, uh, I love James Bond. So there was all these, uh, things that bond bond and drive course, but he was into luxury items. And then I got into car and driver magazine. And, and then my teacher had a, a 77 Targa that was root beer Brown. And that was it off to the races forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, um, I jumped in, I jumped in the deep end of the pool. Um, when I first started making money in the music business in the seventies, we were out in LA recording. We recorded three albums out in LA in the mid seventies. Um, and I was driving by, uh, Beverly Hills Porsche on Wilshire Boulevard when it was there uh, on the corner near La Cienega. And, um, in the window was a red 930 turbo and they'd just come out. You know, the turbo came out in 76 and this was a, a 77. And I, I flipped out and I, I went in to the dealer and I went, oh my God. And the guy told me that Rod Stewart had a deposit on it. Wow. And I, I called my manager and I told him, I said, man, I saw this amazing car. I said, but Rod Stewart's got a deposit on it. And my manager said, let's go down there. And he went down there and he, I don't know what exactly what he said to this guy, but I got the car. So I had a red 930 turbo was my first car. And then I've had a 56 speedster and many, many Porsches over the years. So, yeah. How does it start for you? Does it start by uh, James Dean, that whole glory? No, I mean, I, I was a car person from the time I was a little kid. I followed racing and all that. And I just, you know, I just, I knew a lot about Porsches and um, I just, yeah, it just, uh, it, the, the 930 Turbo was so badass. I mean, it was like seriously badass. It was red, it was guards red, Yeah. Uh, you know, it had gold BBS wheels. So, I mean, it was like ridiculous. And so uh, that, that I was hooked from there on. And um, actually, you know, I just bought a 964 Turbo, a 92. Oh, wow. I love it. Really cool, really cool one that belonged to a good friend of mine that he's owned for over 20 years. Um, so yeah, I'm just a, yeah, yeah. I'm one of those guys. Yeah. Yep. It's so hard to get a nine, six, four now because, uh, that's what singer was using as their, you know, base model before you could get them so cheap. And then they started using them and everybody was like, Oh, well, I'm just going to charge 80 grand for my nine, six, four now. Yeah. Now they're hot, but there's a reason they're hot. You know, it's the first modern nine eleven. It has ABS, it has airbags. It, it has uh, a lot of features that really took Porsche from the, the G body, you know, the eighties cars up into the, a little bit more modern world, you know, but yet it still has that, that small nine eleven feel, you know, um, yeah, it's a spectacular car. Yeah, because the 993 after that, it's just not the same. And, you know, it, it, 993 is a fantastic car. Yeah, it's great, but too. 964 was the last with the headlight, you know. the, the Yeah, it's exactly. The, it, it, there's so many things that, that it's it's that it, it's that it, it keeps its feet in both sides. You know, the, the old world of Porsche and where Porsche was going. So it's a transitional car. A very, very cool car. Yeah. More, most Porsche guys are also watch guys. Are you a watch guy? Uh, yeah, just now, yeah, you know, not a little bit. I, I, I bought my first Apple watch just recently. Oh, the new titanium one. No, yeah, the Apple Watch Ultra. Yeah, I just bought it. And I, I didn't know if I was going to like it, but I actually really like it. It's really uh, it's really cool. I like that watch a lot. Yeah. Let's get into the music, man. I mean, obviously, I, uh, you know, I'm 56. So I grew up in the 70s uh, at the height of FM radio and, uh, you know, Doobie Brothers and and Steely Dan, Holonos, all of that dominating the dial. And to me, it's really interesting to think about because I played music for 25 years. 
is how do you like are, are you guys are a duo back then in 1970 and of course i know the history of uh you guys but how did you uh, were you just start demoing and were you out playing clubs how do you get going no we we didn't we didn't come up through the club scene or anything like that um daryl and i were were working uh separately in Philadelphia, Daryl was doing a lot of studio work uh, with some of the Gamble and Huff people. Uh, I was doing a little bit, and I was also playing in blues bands and playing in folk clubs. Um, I, you know, I did a lot of folk blues and things like that. Um, and then through some circumstances, which you know, if you, if you really want to get into it, you can read my book because it's it's all there, but it's a long, long story. But anyway, we got together as as kind of a reaction to the fact that he wasn't happy doing what he was doing and I wasn't necessarily satisfied with what I was doing. And so we kind of got together just like casually and said, I'll tell you what, you know, you play some of your songs, I'll play guitar um, and I'll play some of my songs and you'll play piano and company me. And, and it was very kind of like that. Um, and we started doing that and we started playing in folk clubs and art galleries in Philadelphia, you know, in this little hippie uh, neighborhood that we lived in. And little by little, we started getting a following. Uh, and um, then we auditioned for Atlantic Records in New York. And Are the great producer, Arif Martin, uh, you know, he said he wanted to produce us. And that's how we got our Atlantic Records contract. Uh, and so we went, you know, so we we went directly from, uh, you know, Philadelphia studio work, um, folk clubs and things like blues bands right into uh, New York, into the studio world. What was that audition like? Did you go to a, uh, just a, a studio or the office, the two of you, you're playing acoustic? Well, we were dealing with a guy in Philadelphia who we were kind of sort of working for, who um, who wasn't that honest, to be honest, to be honest with you. He yeah. wasn't um, and we were very frustrated. We weren't getting anywhere. And so we, Daryl and I just took it upon ourselves. We flew out to L.A., um, and we knew the publisher, the Chapel Music was our publisher, songwriting publisher. Uh, this guy took us around. He took us to this guy's house named Earl McGrath. And Earl was a very good friend of Ahmed Erdogan, the president of Atlantic. And Earl Earl knew everybody. He was very much involved in the West Coast uh, Hollywood rock scene of the early 70s. Uh, he, you know, he's friends with the Stones and all sorts of interesting people, the Eagles and everybody. Um, and Earl really liked us. And he called Atlantic. We auditioned for him. We actually auditioned for him in his backyard, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, he called Atlantic Records and said, I found these two guys. You, you ought to give them a listen. So he said, why don't you guys go back to New York and audition? And that's how the audition happened. And then we auditioned and Arif, who was their main, you know, the top producer at Atlantic, he said he wanted to produce us. And that's all it took. When you auditioned, what songs did you have? Did you have She's Gone? Did you have any mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. nothing really early stuff? So this was 70. I remember this was early 70, late 71, early 72. Um, and the first album we made was called Whole Oats. Right. Uh, she, She's Gone wasn't until Abandoned Luncheonette, which was two years later. I get that. But sometimes people will be like, yeah, we had that track laying no, around. No, 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 we didn't. We had a bunch of really weird songs, like really weird, uh, like esoteric uh Joni Mitchell meets Andy Warhol kind of songs. Um, wow. I can't even describe what they were. Uh and we just played this really weird grab bag of stuff. Uh and evidently Arif had the musicality and to see through all that and he saw something in us and he wanted to produce us. That's incredible to see that vision, you know, because 
you know, these days I was looking at it because you go all the way up to like, you know, your 10th album, let's say uh, by the time of like 1981. But if you get into record deals now and people would be like, I don't, I don't hear any hits. I don't see anything. See you later. You know, you wouldn't even be able to do one record. We would never have had a career if we were trying to start now, it, not in a million years. Um, it was a completely different world, completely different sensibility, uh, you know, and record companies and people signed bands or artists because they thought that they could develop them into having a career, that there was possibility of a long-term career there because there was an in, innate talent. They were looking for innate talent. They weren't looking for hits. Gee, that's strange. What a concept. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is so wild because you and I both know there's all these bands over the years where you're like, these guys should have been huge. There's people that are just great. And the record company just, you know, they just dropped the ball. They don't know what they're doing. You're like, how did that band not make it? You know? So you had, you had guys that were really working it. I mean, cause you could go all the way, you know, album after album after album. Of course you start to have some radio success, but like I said, these days, you know, if it's not two, three million streams out of the gate, you're gone. Well, we made three albums before we had a hit and they stuck with us um, throughout that time. So uh, they did. They stuck with us because they thought that you know, maybe we would have a hit or, you know, I don't know why they did, but they did. Um, you know, and we kept getting better and we kept working hard and touring and writing. And there you go. What were some of those early tours like? Was it just two piece or did you actually go out with a band? Um, we, we In the early, early days before we had the record contract, it was just two piece. Then when we got the record contract, we hired a bass player and a drummer from Philadelphia who were the only two players that we knew that could you know travel or whatever. And we went out with them initially, but that only lasted a, a few months. We added a, a, a another keyboard player and a guy who played uh, Mellotron and guitar. Um, Neil Rosengarten was his name. And then, then we expanded from there. Then we added Chris Bond and, and we kept, you know, the band kept getting bigger and evolving. Uh, and it, it, over the years, you know, we've been really blessed by having great, great players. Um, but in the early days, it was just, you know, we just took whatever we can. We, we opened for, God, we opened for everybody. We opened for uh, David Bowie on his first tour. Wow. Stardust. Uh, we opened for him. We opened for Cheech and Chong. We opened for we open for blood, sweat, and tears. We open for Stevie Wonder. We open for, I mean, I, it, the list goes on and on and on. We open for, we open for Lou Reed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. It was crazy. Uh, so, you know, we, we just basically, uh, we were just out there touring all the time. The, those early, you know, if like, you look back at the seventies, a lot of times too, the audience would just boo the opener. You remember that? Well, they boot us on the they boot us on the Lou Reed tour. That's for sure. We didn't we didn't stay we didn't last too long on that one. That was the Transformer tour. It was a terrible idea for us to be on that bill. Um, so yeah, that that didn't last too long. It's an interesting thing to get booed. I I uh, just did a two month tour. Uh, yeah, I'm a comedian now, so opening for this fantastic artist named Marcus King, and uh, I know Marcus King. Yeah, oh, sure. yeah, yeah, he's fantastic. Uh, but do you get into a couple of these animal territories like Philly, uh, oh, DC? Yeah, you and, don't want to go to Philadelphia. No, they don't forget that Philadelphia are the people who threw threw a bottle of beer at Santa Claus. So, you know, <laughs> you know during the Eagles game. So, yeah. Yeah, but then you'll get dudes in the crowd, like singular dudes now. It's not a whole audience anymore. And it's always usually an older guy. 
uh, that grew up in the seventies and they'll be like, boo. And I'm not <laughs> sure if they're booing their life or me, you know, but it's funny to think about. You just booed the opener. People booed Prince when he opened for uh, the stones, you know, it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. When you, when you wrote, she's gone, when you guys had that, did you realize this is it, man? This is a great, great song. It, it did stand out uh, as we were recording the Abandoned Luncheonette album. It did. It, it it felt like the standout song for sure. There's no doubt about it. And we we definitely gave it some extra love. And Arif Martin uh, did this fabulous string arrangement on that song. And and he was very uh, very instrumental, no pun intended, in uh, in the arrangement of that song uh, to really bring it to life. And of course. He surrounded us with the greatest studio musicians in New York who played on it. People like Bernard Purdy on drums and, you know, uh, Gordon Edwards and uh, it's just, you know, amazing people. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, that song. And I think Sarah Smile, I think Sarah Smile could be one of the greatest 70s tunes of all time. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a fantastic song. It's a it's a timeless classic, no doubt. What kind of animal does it turn into once MTV starts happening and, you know, you have a string of hits? Are the record companies still trying to force you to write with outside writers, even though you had a track record of hits? No, we never wrote with outside writers. We had inside writers, people who were part of our team, uh, Sarah Allen, Jana Allen, and uh, mostly those two uh, only, really. Um, and... Uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't until very late in our career when we had the misfortune of signing with Arista Records, uh, and that was a mistake in late in the late eighties after we left RCA. And they were that that was when the music business was starting to transition to that place where the business people were were starting to act like A and R men and telling you what to do. And hey, this doesn't sound like a hit, you know. As you you alluded to earlier. Um, yeah, that 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 didn't work for us. So we 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 quickly left there. Um, and from that point on, Hall and Oates has never made an album with a record company since. Uh, we were actually, you know, believe it or not, I, I don't think we get enough credit for it. But we were one of the first groups to to actually be independent recorders in the early '90s. Um, we made an independent album in '96, and there weren't many artists who were kind of. All, you know, more established, classic, successful artists who were even doing that. And uh, so, you know, we were kind of on the forefront of that movement of getting away from the big record companies. I just think how hard that was back then. Now you got streaming and YouTube and everything. You just put it out everywhere. But back then you actually had to physically press stuff, say vinyl yeah. or CD and cassettes, and then figure out distribution and getting it into the record stores. Yeah, it was not easy. Uh, we we created our own record imprint, record label. We, you know, we did it. We printed all that stuff and hired independent promoters. And we we did what a big record company would do, but we did it on a smaller scale. Right. Was there a time where you didn't own your publishing and then you fight, you sued and got it back? Am I right on that? You are exactly right on that. Because you were like, you had no money. Like, you're like, wait, we have all these hits and, and we got robbed on our stuff. What happened there? Well, <laughs> certain, <laughs> certain, things, certain things I can't really talk about, to be honest with you. Um, but you you have the gist of it. Um, there were deals made on our behalf in the uh, 70s and into the 80s that parlayed our, um, our copyrights into cash. 
And um, it, it felt good when we had a lot of cash, but when the cash was gone, so were the copyrights. So it took many, many years. And I, it, uh, I had to work very hard with um, some very uh, good friends at, at, at the label, at, at BMG, to be exact, to try to get the, the copyright, some of the, the publishing back. And eventually, uh, Daryl and I did secure a, um, a lot of it back. Um, and, and it took years and years of negotiation and cajoling and uh, all sorts of things. Um, but yes, we did eventually get it back. There's people out there that are just going to have to be on the road till they're 90. And people are like, you know, they don't have a clue. They're like, why are these guys on the road? They don't need the money. It's like, oh, yeah, they definitely need the money. Yeah, it's 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 the sad it's the sad reality. Um, uh, the, you know, the music business is, uh, has a you know a great tradition of um, the tail wagging the dog. You know, and uh, artists uh, artists and and you know uh, musicians in general tend to want to focus on that on music and and that, and they don't pay enough attention to the business side of things. And happens all the time. It's still happening. Um, and uh, may never go away. Although I, I will say that younger artists are way more savvy about what it is they do and how they're handling their own, uh, their own business. So um, it doesn't, not quite as, not quite as bad as it was back in the, in the bad old days. No, oh, man. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, every band has a story. It's just incredible. It's a, it's yeah. just a standard tale. If you're in music, you got robbed. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty yeah. Much. When you were starting out, what you remember your first guitar and who were your guitar people? Like, did you see oh, somebody sure. like Elvis or something or Curtis Mayfield and go, Oh, I got to play guitar. Well, yeah. I mean, going way back when, uh, you know, when I was five years old, um, the only uh, lived in a little town in Pennsylvania outside of Philadelphia. And the only music teacher in that town was an accordion teacher who taught like umpa music and um, you know, like Pennsylvania Dutch music. <laughs> um, and so my mom, knowing that I had musical talent, she got me this little kitty accordion and uh, signed me up for lessons. And I hated it. And I never practiced ever. And after about three lessons, the, you know, the accordion just sat in the closet. And finally, the teacher said, you know, I don't think he wants to do this. And I said, no, I don't. And I said, I want to play the guitar like Elvis, you know. Um, so I got a guitar and I took guitar lessons. I never looked back. Um yeah, the first guitar I got was a was actually a handmade guitar that a friend my my friend who lived down the street from me, his father was a woodworker and he had made a handmade guitar and it was sitting in the basement. And I grabbed it and I said, "Can I, you know, can I borrow this?" He said, "You can have it." Um I actually still have that guitar. Really? Yeah. And um then, you know, then of course my, you know, my parents we went to, you know, New York and bought guitars and whatever. And they were always real, real supportive. Uh, but I was, um, I, I really became, you know, it was, it was the early rockers, like people like Chuck Berry, things like that. Uh, I was heavily influenced by Curtis Mayfield, heavily influenced by a lot of the roots performers like Doc Watson, Mississippi, John Hurt, uh, Sunhouse, people like that. So um, I have a very wide eclectic uh, set of influences that I always, that I, and I bring all those to bear on the music I make, you know, uh, I don't, it doesn't really matter to me about the style. I just, whatever works, I, you know, use my, use my, uh, you know, kind of old musical DNA to kind of create something new. Do you collect guitars? Do you have any vintage stuff or? I, I'm not a collector, like a crazy collector who collects just for the sake of collecting. I have uh, working guitars. Every guitar I have, I use. If I don't use it, I probably don't keep it. Um, but I do have a lot of guitars. Yeah. 
What do you prefer? Humbucker, single coils, strats, Les Pauls? I have my classic 1958 Stratocaster um, that that was converted to humbuckers back in the early 70s, which in those days, people didn't do things like that. And so it's a very unique guitar. Um, I've been playing it ever since the early 70s. I have that, but I also have, uh, you know, I mean, I just bought a brand new guitar recently. I bought a new Taylor GT uh, Mahogany, which uh, is this little little short scale guitar that's amazing. Um, and I've got everything in between. I've got Mississippi John Hurt's acoustic guitar that he played at Newport in 1963. Wow. Uh, it's, it's really rare, obviously. Um, and I've got all sorts of things. You know, I've got a lot of custom-made Gibsons, some custom-made Martins. Um, you know, I got some all, all sorts of things. I'm a uh, Bay Area guy. I grew up in the Bay Area, San Francisco, and a uh, huge Bill Graham fan and uh, saw Hollow notes many times at places like uh, Concord Pavilion. Oh, you mean that? You mean that? You mean the, the garbage dump? Uh, <laughs> no, that's the shoreline. Yeah. Oh, the shoreline. That's the garbage dump. Yeah, yeah that's I the garbage. One of them was a garbage dump. I can't remember. Yeah, I remember that. Like, I was just talking to somebody about that. Like, the first year they planted the grass, then people would toss their cigarettes and methane gas <laughs> would come out <laughs> from underground. But do you have any great memories? Did you play Winterland or anything like that? We didn't play Winterland during its heyday. We played it later on. Um, no, we, we mostly played, uh, you know, we played the smaller theaters in, in, in San Francisco. And then we played, of course, Shoreline and, and Concord and things like that. I saw you guys at House of Blues Hollywood, I don't know, maybe 20, 15, 18 years ago or something. And I noticed that you, um, you were, uh, you know, like bodybuilding at what point do you get into that like working out and, and getting healthy and stuff because you were like you were in shape i'm still in shape oh yeah you are no don't get For me my wrong. Age, I'm, I'm definitely in shape i'm just saying when i saw you i was like wow i've been an athlete ever since i've been a kid i was a wrestler um i ran track i uh, did all sorts of things i'm a skier um, i'm an avid bicycle cyclist i ride i i hike i do trail running um, I do yoga. I do all that stuff. So, um, yeah, I've always been like that. Um, I've never really, uh, you know, you know, back in the 80s, I played tennis all the time. I was a big tennis fan, too. So, you know, it's just been part of my lifestyle. I just like to stay healthy. I, I brought that up because I know you have uh, this new single, Pushing a Rock, and and it's uh, yeah. you're talking about Movember and yep. men's health and yep. uh, prostate cancer and stuff like that. Great song, by the way. Some really yeah. good falsetto on there. I dig the uh, I dig the singing. It's great to hear you solo. Yeah, yeah. I stretched out a little bit. I went I went back to my early seventies R and B. Um, I kind of clicked into that that era for that song. Um, yeah, it just felt right. You know, that was a song that was written earlier in two fourteen um, for an album I did called Good Road to Follow, uh, and I wrote it with Nathan Paul Chapman who. Uh, was the guy who produced all the early Taylor Swift albums. Whoa. And, and we we wrote that together uh, based on like uh, kind of struggles and things that were going on in our both of our lives at that time back then. Uh, and then during COVID, um, I never felt that music was very good for that song. I always liked the lyrics. And then during COVID, I revisited the song and I thought, you know, I had some, you know, I had plenty of time in my hands. I got on my computer and started making a track. And I started to reimagine the song, but I kept most of the lyrics. And so the version you hear now is a re kind of a reimagined version of an old song. It's really good. 
Thanks, man. Do you uh, talking about going through some problems and stuff? Uh, what kind of problems were you going through? Uh, I mean, I, I have some bouts of depression and have been doing some microdosing lately, which has really been helped me over the last couple of years. What kind of problems uh, were you coming up with? Was it just kind of middle of the life? Wow. What's going on with me? Well, yeah, I mean, sure. I had, I had my midlife crisis, uh, yeah, but <laughs> I bought a car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, bought a red, I bought a red XKE. So, oh, shit. Like, don't, yeah, don't don't get too Freudian when you think about that. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, no, you know, back in the late 80s, you know, I got divorced, lost a manager. I, I was I was running with a bad crowd in New York City. Uh, things weren't going well. And I basically checked out. Uh, and I, I sold everything I owned, moved to Colorado and started my life over again. So that was one of the most heaviest things that I ever dealt with. I really kind of basically reinvented myself. Uh, and then, but through the years, you know, there's always been issues. There, there's things that are going on right now. There's, uh, you know, uh, old um, business associations and stuff that uh, that has, had been in place uh, since the early 70s that, that didn't address modern uh modern issues and i and during COVID, i had a chance to review and reevaluate and it was very traumatic to think that you know i was just accepting things that had been in place for so long that really didn't uh, apply anymore so uh, i'm i'm constantly dealing with stuff uh, you know i think i think everyone does everyone has things that they have to face issues and that's what this song is about yeah yeah are you talking more about like old contracts that didn't deal with streaming percentages and stuff like that? Exactly. The gold contracts that didn't address the modern world, but were still in place and still in force that had to be re reassessed, um, renegotiated and all that stuff being that, that stuff to unwind the past is like exhausting, trust me, and expensive. So um, I've been dealing with a lot of that. Where are you living now? I live in Nashville. Oh, Nashville. I was just there. I uh, did the Ryman. How how you like Nashville? Oh, did you play the Ryman? Yeah, two nights, uh, a few weeks the, ago. The best, the best venue in the world. It's unbelievable, man. It's unbelievable. Hey, let me ask, I'm going to ask you a question that only a performer would understand. Yeah. When the first time I played the Ryman, when I stood in the center, you know, in the circle, in the middle. Yeah. Now, most, most of the time when you're on stage, and you'll know this, you, you know, you've got your mic, you've got your monitors, you hear what is coming out of the monitors and you're really not sure what the audience is hearing. You have to, if you have a good sound man, you're expecting that they're hearing something good, right? Okay. But at the Ryman, there's no separation between what you hear on stage and what's in the house. You hear everything all at the same time. It's the most amazing, like sonic phenomenon. I don't even know how to just, did you experience that? Well, I was doing it with comedy. So uh, Marcus was playing music, but I will tell you this with comedy. It's one of the most electric rooms for laughs that I've ever heard. You drop a bomb, a big laugh, a joke that, you know, is going to kill. And it comes at you like you're at a Yankee game and a guy hit a grand slam. It's just like, <sighs> Well, that's what I was kind of saying that there's no there's no separation between what the audience hears and what their and their feedback and what you're doing on stage. Whereas on any normal stage, you you're just up there in your little isolated sonic world of your monitors and your mic, and they're getting something else. Yeah, there's a there's a true connection in that room. Yeah. And the uh that and the Fillmore in San Francisco, 
those rooms feel like everybody that has played in there is still in there and they're kind of rooting you on behind yeah, you. The ghosts, the ghosts of the, yeah, well, absolutely. There's, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of mojo in those places. Yeah. How do you like Nashville? I love it. We've been here for 15 years now. Um, and we still have our place in Colorado and we still spend time out there, but uh, no, it's great. You know, the great, greatest songwriters, musicians, players, it's uh, engineers, studios, it's, it's all here. And uh, it's just so convenient. You know, everything's a mile away. You know, it's, it's amazing. Where are you at right now with Daryl Hall? How's your guys' relationship? Well, we just finished a, a very, very short run of eight shows, which is all we really did this year because I was focusing on my new music and he was solo uh, doing some solo touring with Todd Rundgren. So yeah, we're just, uh, we're basically operating independently of each other. And then we'll get together and tour again uh, next year at some point, but when I can't say. Right, right, right. Is it is it uh, a friendly relationship or is it just a working relationship? Yeah, it's more like a working relationship. I mean, we don't really socialize or anything like that. Yeah, that's it's pretty wild. I mean, at least you guys are still playing together. You know, there's a time oh, no, we get on we get on stage. It's like time stops. Like doesn't matter about anything that happens. We just we just play the play the music and it's it seems to work. Well, I got to tell you, man, it was uh, an honor to talk to you, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. I was just at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame my second time. And uh, I mean, your guys' track record is unbelievable. I don't know, over 80, 90 million records sold, the most successful duo of all time. You, you know, the, the tracks, the greatest hits, you're a lot like I say when I went to see the cars. There's no piss tracks like you play <laughs> and I can't go take a piss because it's just hit after hit after hit. You know, I think funny. one of the coolest songs you guys did, and it's kind of weird, is Family Man. We, You know, we didn't write that. You didn't. Oh, uh, yeah. Who who wrote that? That was written by um, uh, Mike Oldfield. It's an old cover. Yeah. Mike Oldfield. You know, Mike Oldfield was known for his instrumental records. And on one of his albums, he had a female singer sing that song. And uh, one of our roadies, we were in a studio recording, uh, I think, whatever, H2O or whatever it was. And um, one of our roadies came in with an, he was a Mike Oldfield fan. And he came, he said, man, you should hear the new Mike Oldfield album. There's this song on there that's really cool. You guys should cut it. And we listened to it. We went, oh, that's cool. Let's cut it. And so we cut it. Yeah, that's, I never knew it was a cover. Yeah, that's one of the few covers. In fact, I think it's, we've only done two covers. You Lost That Love and Feeling and that. Oh, man. Well, uh, I got to thank you for doing the show. Yeah, man, this is cool. This is great. I, I love the music. If you're ever out in LA, come out and see some comedy. And uh, I will. I'll check you out. And here's here's my new car. Oh, it's so it's white. It's exactly like this. Wow. Oh, now is it uh, all wheel or just two wheel? No, the the 964 Turbo was rear wheel drive. Oh, we're uh, okay. Gotcha. I didn't know yeah. it was turbo. Oh, I see it's yeah, turbo because I the see 4S. the 4S. They made the 4S. Right. But it wasn't a turbo. But the right. turbo is is it's it's amazing. Wow. Black interior. No, a cashmere. Damn. Oh. They call, they call it cashmere leather. It's like a buttery yellow leather with black uh, black dash and black headliner. How many miles? Uh, it's got sixty eight thousand on it. But it was complete. It was just completely came out of Porsche Classic. Completely rebuilt engine from the ground up, new suspension, new everything. So it it drives like a new car. Wow. As, you know, uh, I don't know if you know who King Diamond is. 
Um, but he's in this uh, metal band, Merciful Fate, and he just got a uh, Turbo S. And so we were talking cars also new, with him. One? Yeah, brand new one. That's that's the monster. That's like yeah. The, that's like the, the the greatest car ever built. Yeah, you got to go to uh, Dream Racing when you're in Vegas. My buddy owns it, and they have the newest one. You know, and you can you can get it on the track. I got it out on the track. I also drove the GT2. And you know that GT two got away from me on one of the turns. It's it's a gnarly beast, man. Yeah, that's a beast as well. Yeah. Oh my god, I I just love I just love Porsche. There's nothing better. Yeah, it's great. Well, I'm glad that they were kindred spirits there. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, so the uh, pushing a rock the uh, singles out right now. The video's out. You can see it on YouTube, and go check it out. And do you have an Instagram or anything? I got everything. John Oates official. There it is. John Oates official. Go say hi to him. And thank you so much for the uh, great music all these years. Hey, Appreciate it, man. Thanks. Thanks for doing the show. All right. We'll good to see you. See you, buddy. Bye. Bye-bye.